printed notes, a lot of notes, but hopefully it's helpful. We'll pass it around, maybe half and half. Uh, and yeah, we are going to go fast. I really hope it's helpful to you. I'm going to put my phone number and my email. Um, I really would like to talk to you if you have questions, uh, or if a lot of you have been in scripture a lot longer than I have. So if you want to call me and help me understand something better, I would love that too. Uh, that's my cell, and here's my email. I would absolutely love to talk because I think uh, I think we're going to go so fast that in a lot of ways we're just going to skip over things that you feel like, gosh, how could you miss that? How could we skip that? Um, but hopefully the big overview picture will be helpful. Um, let's let's do this real quick. If you don't mind, I'm just going to pray really quick one more time. I feel like I'd like to do that if that's okay. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would, um, like Alan already asked, I pray that you'd make your word uh, true and real and wonderful, and we know that it is, and so we pray that you would uh, show us that this morning and ultimately show us yourself. Help me to be clear and helpful to everyone here. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, uh, goals as we go. I'm going to talk fast. I'm recording it. You can slow it down on the recording. Uh, so we're just going to go like light speed to Endor, and then we'll, we'll figure it out from there. Um, yeah, I guess you could speed it up too. Uh, goals for the six weeks together. I really hope that uh, you will be encouraged and reminded that the Bible is one story. This is all one contiguous flowing unit that God is, is working to uh, working out his plan in history. And he's working out his purposes. And it's not a bunch of disjointed books and stories and random things thrown in and here a law and there a law. It's all working together in one flow. Um, also I hope that we'll see that the Bible is epic there's no better word for it it is epic, it is glorious sometimes when you're reading in Leviticus or Numbers it's easy to forget that Uh, but as we start to lay the foundation of the Old Testament you start to see all these details pop out and you realize this is this is majestic. This is, this is epic. There's no better word. Um, I also hope that we see the richness and the depth and that every detail matters. Every place is not a throwaway place. Every name is not a throwaway name. Every detail matters. When we say that scripture is God-breathed, that's what we mean. Every word is, is purposeful and meaningful. Um, and then lastly, uh, goals. I hope that it helps us understand the rest of the Bible better. Uh, Like I said, all those details start to pop. When John says that Jesus is full of grace and truth, if we know our Old Testament really well, we know that only God, when he reveals his name in Exodus 34, uses that phrase together. So John's saying, Jesus is God. Or we start to realize that when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, he's telling us that he's the one that Daniel saw that was coming, that would be a second better Adam, fix all of humanity's problems, and it just everything starts to explode with meaning. Make sense so far? Am I going way too fast? No. No? Okay, good. Uh, Okay. Uh, Method. How are we going to do it? We're going to go fast. Uh, I'm going to record it. You can email me. You can call me. And lastly, uh, I'm going to focus on the theological side of things more than the this is the details of what happened in the book. Because I think sometimes we get caught up on this is the details of what happened and we forget that history is God putting theology on display. History is, is dramatic doctrine. Doctrine playing out and theology playing out. So let's get into it. Uh, 
if that very first page is an overview of all the books we're going to try to cover today, uh, I can already tell we're not going to get there. Uh, but does anyone know why we're starting with Job? Yeah, it's considered the oldest book. When you look at the Hebrew, all the words are super old, way older than the language Moses used. And so we start to realize that, obviously, it's not before creation. Genesis describes events that happen before what happens in Job. But the actual writing of the book of Job took place first. And what's, what's really interesting about Job, Job is the prologue, if you will, to the Bible. Job explains why you need the rest of your Bible. So if you get Job, you get the whole trajectory. You know what to look for when you read the rest of your Bible. So Job is actually really important. And most of us know chapter 1, chapter 2, the really long part in the middle, and then God talks to him at the end. Yes? That's kind of how we know Job. And uh, what I, what I did, I, I got this from one of my professors. I thought it was really helpful. All that middle section in your notes, I have a, a kind of an outline to walk you through it. So if you wanted to read through you can see how that, that fleshes out. But um, here's what's going on in Job. The question that runs throughout Job is, does God govern the universe rightly? Uh, is God right in how he runs things? Does God bribe his people? That's what Satan says. You're just bribing Job. Is God right in letting bad things happen to, quote-unquote, good people like Job? And so that's this question that's going on and on. Is God right in heaven? Is he right on earth? Does he run things rightly? And what we start to realize from Job, can Job ever figure out exactly what's going on with him? Does he ever figure out exactly what's going on? No. Why? Where can't Job see? Where? Yeah, he can't see into the spiritual realm. He doesn't know the whole interchange that we know about in chapter 2. And so Job sets up this paradigm for the whole Bible, which is this. You can't figure out life unless God reveals it to you, unless God gives you divine revelation. And you get, you get Job's three friends, and uh, Eliphaz is this historian. Uh, Bildad, I always think of Bill Nye, Bildad the science guy, he's, from a, he's saying uh, science can solve all of our problems in this world. Eliphaz says, well, if we look at history, we can figure everything out. And Zophar is the philosopher. If we, if we have great philosophy, we can figure this life out. And in the course of all of these, there's three cycles of where they, they talk through. And it's really interesting, actually. Cycle one is kind of like a pre-modern mindset. And then you've got a modern mindset and a post-modern mindset. It, it, it covers everything. And all of them fall short. And at the end, God comes and speaks to Job and basically says, Job, I'm right. I'm always right. I do what's right. And, and throughout the course of the book, Job realizes, I can only figure this out if God reveals this to me. Um, We have to have divine revelation to understand this world. Now, uh, I think I totally messed up. Do you see that Job's wishes section? That was supposed to have meaningful information, not placeholders. So uh, if you want to write it in, you can, but Job has three wishes that are um, they're really interesting. (laughs) Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. It's um, something like that. Uh, So look at this. In uh, chapter 7, verse 21, Job's first wish, he says, all his friends are going back and forth. It was your fault. It was cause and effect. It was, and he says, why do you not pardon, forgive my transgression and take away my iniquity? Job's request number one. I know it would all be okay if there was a way for my sin to be forgiven. That's Job's first wish. 
You flip over a little farther to 9, verse 33, chapter 9, verse 33. Job's second wish. Uh, I, I think it's Zophar has been telling him, God is just so complex you can't figure him out. And Job says, yeah, but there's no arbiter between us, mediator between us, who might lay his hand on both of us. So Job's first wish, I need forgiveness. His second wish, I can't go, I can't argue with God. So I need a mediator who can put his hand on one and the other, who's both divine and human. Huh, that sounds familiar. Job's second wish. His third wish comes in chapter 14. And he says, uh, Oh, that you would hide me in Sheol, that you're, you would conceal me until your wrath be passed, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? What Job is saying is, I want to have all the wrath pass away while I'm dead and then have a resurrection where I'll be resurrected. So he wants forgiveness, a mediator, and a resurrection. Does that sound like anything we're familiar with? Yes. That, that's the gospel in Job. And so Job's wishes set this pattern for the rest of all of Scripture. We have to have divine revelation to figure this life out. And we're going to need some way to forgive sin, some way to, uh, yes. That last reference, what was it? 14 uh, verses 13 and 14. Yeah, yeah, no. Yeah. One quick thing. Yeah. You thought, but I thought he also says at one point he wishes there was a written word. He says, I wish all this was written on a stylus. Ooh, where is that? I don't you know. know. Okay, I'll have to find that. Uh, I'll have to find... what I do all the time. No, no, I, I, I honestly am going to write it. It's in there, I'm sure. And it's in Joe. Okay. But he does want a written word. Okay. That's, that's... How did I miss that? That's what I was talking about. Some of you know way more than I do. Uh, so that's sort of the setting and the prologue and the foundation to the rest of Scripture. With me so far? Chapter 7, verse what? Seven, 721. Okay, he you. asked for pardon. Got it. 933, mediator. Yeah. 1413, 14, resurrection. And somewhere else, written, written word. Uh, now let's flip all the way back to in the beginning. It's uh, Job 1923. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Mm-hmm. Oh, that an iron pen and lead, they were engraved in rock forever. Perfect. So now, uh, Genesis. The first five books of the Old Testament were all written and delivered to the Israelites right before they entered the Promised Land. So what Moses is doing in the first five books is shaping a worldview for the Israelites so that they would know as they enter into the land who they are, who their God is, what the agenda is, and that they have a full worldview shaped. So that's the whole purpose of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Old Testament. Those are all written by Moses. They all go together. And in Genesis, you all know this part, but... This whole first chapter is basically showing this. The thesis of the Bible is that God is supreme over everything and that everything exists for him and everything else is dependent on him. He's the creator. We are what's created and he is supreme. That's the thesis of of the whole Bible. That the universe exists to put on display all of who this God is and for his creation to, to worship and delight and enjoy him. There is so much cool stuff, uh, and I think we're going to just 
keep moving. Um, man is made, you see this in 128. Man is made in God's image. That word image there talks about uh, kings back then would put a statue of themselves in an area to show that they ruled over that area. It's like marking their territory. So uh, man being made in God's, God's image has so much more to it just in this, but the main aspect it's emphasizing is man is to go into the world as God's representative to show God rules over this, this land, this region, and to extend God's rule and reign and to put him on display and to enjoy him. And it talks about that attributes that they share and all kinds of amazing, wonderful things. So in Genesis 1 and 2, you get creation, you get marriage. What happens in Genesis 3? Paul, the rebellion. Yes. So you get you get the fall, you get sin entering, you get a whole theology of temptation and sin and how it works and Satan and what what's going on in the fall, I guess just to mention this, is a complete reversal of the structures that God has set up. God has set up man to rule over creation. God has set up um, the, hus- the wife to submit to her husband. God has set up everything to submit to him. And Satan comes in and from the very beginning, did God really say? He flips that. Then he goes to the woman, not the man. He flips that. He uses an animal to be his instrument. He flips the man in creation. He flips everything point for point to try to say, I, Satan, am going to be God, not God. And God comes back and point for point answers him and says, you're not going to win. So if you look in, after the fall happens, Genesis 3, 15, we call this the first gospel. Genesis 3, 15. And what God promises here is that he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is like the launch pad that we go off of from here because what God is saying is that even though sin has distorted everything and death has now entered and this world is broken, Eden is lost, I'm going to bring someone through Eve, I'm going to bring someone who will be able to crush Satan, who will be able to win in the end. God is basically declaring war here and saying, I'm going to war against Satan and I'm going to win in the end. And I'm going to work everything to my purpose to win. He shall crush Bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's the first gospel in Genesis 3.15. And so, uh, as Moses is shaping the worldview of the Israelites, we, we're going to skip over the flood. Uh, there's lots going on there. Babel is important uh, in that it shows how man is fundamentally against God. And you get recapitulations of Babel over and over again. Pharaoh is described with the same words as Babel. Um, if you think about Revelation in the future, how uh, the whole world system is described as Babel. And so um, that kind of sets the beginnings, the foundations of, of that. But does anyone know in chapter 15, what do we find in chapter 15? God makes a promise to Abraham. 12 is when it's introduced. But in 15, you get this really interesting phrase. God says that basically he narrows this down. He says, someone will come who can defeat Satan. And then he narrows it down to one family. He says it's going to come from Abraham's family. And he promises Abraham land, seed, people, and blessing. 
And then in Genesis 15, 6, you get this foundational worldview shaping thing. Verse 6 of Genesis 15 says, And he, Abraham, believed the Lord, and he, the Lord, counted to him, Abraham, as righteousness. So, and Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to Abraham as righteousness. Have you ever heard people say, well, in the Old Testament, you get saved by works and keeping the law, and in the New Testament, you get saved by grace? That is completely not true. In the Old Testament, how did Abraham get saved? How did Abraham get counted righteous? By believing. The Israelites knew this from the beginning, or at least they should have. Uh, From day one, salvation comes through faith. Salvation always came, always will come through faith. So that's Genesis 15.6. So God's setting this foundational worldview that someone's going to come who can defeat the serpent. Um, Email me if you're interested in talking about Genesis 1. Sorry, I'm realizing we blew past that. If you want to talk about creation and length of creation and all evolution and all that, uh, we went right past it. Email me. There's a lot of neat things to say on that. Uh, Sorry, I'm just, my brain's going everywhere. We still okay? Okay, all right. Um, okay, let's keep moving. We're going we're gonna to move all the way forward to Genesis 32 because that's a next kind of mountain peak here. Um, God is narrowing and windowing down the family line. Oh, by the way, genealogies, they're not boring. They're not boring because genealogies are, are a record of God showing you, I'm narrowing, I'm narrowing, someone's coming, someone's coming who can win, someone's coming who's going to be a king, someone's coming, and all those genealogies are narrowing that down. Um, So genealogies can become very interesting. Genesis 32. Uh, We are in the middle of the story of Jacob at this point. Uh, Abraham, his son Isaac, his son Jacob is carrying on the promise, and Jacob's name means deceiver. And Jacob's whole life story is him uh, deceiving and conniving and trying to um, trying to get things his own way. And does anyone know what happens? uh, He wrestles with God, and God does something. Do you remember? What? What? Jim? Yeah, he touches his hip, but he does. He says, "You're not Jacob anymore. You're Israel." That's where we get the name. Israel means God fights for you. Literally, God fights, but God fights for you. And the point is, Jacob has been shown over and over again to be so, um, for lack of a kinder word, dumb uh, in his own trying to make things work that the angel, or that Lord basically says to him, uh, you've striven with God and man and prevailed. God must be fighting for you for, for this to happen. And so the whole foundational worldview part of this for Israel is, and, and by extension for us, don't, don't do it in your own strength. Believe in God for righteousness and know that God fights for you. You don't need to connive your way through this life. God fights for you. God fights for his people. He is a God who fights for his people. Uh, as we move forward, starting in 37, we get into the story of Joseph. And he is also carrying on the family line that's going to bring the Messiah. Well, Judah will be the one, but, but Joseph is part of the family. And what ends up being shown through Joseph's story is that God is a God who turns evil to good. You guys know that famous line in chapter 50. As for you, you intended it for evil, but God meant intended it for good. Um, So Genesis shows 
God is a God who wars and wins against evil. He saves those who trust in him. He fights for his people and he turns evil to good. There's one thing we can't skip. There's a prophecy about the Messiah in chapter 49. And it says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. I'm reading from verse 10 and 49. Until uh, ESV translated, until tribute comes to him, uh, until Shiloh comes is literally what it says. It means peace. It's a name that means peace. So until the one named peace comes and to him shall be the obedience of the people, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Um, That probably sounds kind of random or weird, but here's what's going on here. A ruler is going to come from Judah. A king is going to come from Judah. And do any of you have a grapevine in your yard? Yeah. Yes? Um, I, th- I think, as far as I can tell, grapevines don't grow much bigger than maybe like your fist around on the biggest, strongest part. Uh, the point is this. If you tie either, either you're able, if you tie a donkey to a vine and he wants to get away, he just walks away and he rips the vine apart or out of the ground. The point is this. The creation through this king is going to be so restored the yield will be so great that you can tie livestock to grapevines because they'll be that thick strong uh the the wine will be so the grape harvest will be so great that you'll wash your clothes in it milk will be so plentiful that you'll you'll uh your teeth will uh you'll have it overflowing is the point and this is the point eden has been lost but the king that's coming can bring you back to Eden and even better. Uh, someone's going to come who can restore Eden. Which, king us into the New Testament. That's why Paul says, uses the metaphor of a new creation. That's why in Revelation we start getting language that harkens back to Eden. Because that's where we're going again. He's going to restore creation. Now I'm getting really off track. But that's why as Christians, it's not just a spiritual thing. We're going to have real physical bodies on a real physical restored earth with real physical uh, blessings and perfection. It's going to be better than Eden ever was because we'll have the king who can restore it. That's Genesis. Still with me so far? Okay. I put some notes about structure and other stuff in there. Um, I love Exodus. Exodus is the book I'm most excited about at this exact moment. Uh, Exodus is like cheerleading for God as you read it. Um, So you get some of the highlights uh, over there on big ideas. But you guys, if you know the general story of Exodus. But let me point out just a few things. uh, Just God being God that are are absolutely awesome. Have you ever noticed? um, Remember the story about the midwives? Yes, at the very beginning, Pharaoh says, we're going to kill the Egyptian, or we're going to, not the Egyptian, we're going to kill the Hebrew babies. And these, these, wow, Hebrew midwives say, well, uh, they, the Hebrew women, they give birth so fast, we, we can't kill them. Sorry, it's, it's not our fault. And there's something really interesting, and this is, kind of goes to the every detail matters. Chapter, yes. Chapter 1, verse 17, if everyone wants to find where you're at. Yes, 1, verse 17. Uh, back, sorry, I'm jumping on you, but back in Babel, Tower of Babel, what the people say is, 
we're going to make a name for ourselves. I don't know if you remember that phrase. If you read through it. We're going to make a name for ourselves. And the very next chapter, God calls Abraham and says, I'm going to make a name for you. And so the juxtaposition is, is are you trying to make a name for yourself or, or let God do it? Well, then in Exodus, you get there and Pharaoh is just described as the king of Egypt, which is not the normal way to refer to Pharaoh. King of Egypt. But guess who does get named? Two Hebrew midwives. The point? God will make a name for his nobodies. And Pharaoh, who's the first world superpower, biggest guy in the world, is said to be the head of the Egyptian pantheon, like he's God in the flesh. You're nobody. You don't even get a name. But I care about my people, and I, I know them by name. And they get a name. So those details, those matter, those play into to how it all fits together. Um, I did need those notes. I left some notes at home. I'm going to try to try to do it just kind of on the fly. Uh, the plagues. The plagues are so, so awesome. The plagues are grouped in three groups of three. Um, you've got... One, two, three. Yeah, there's a better is, there, marker here. is this one the better? Throw that one away. Or maybe this one. Yeah. Yeah. That one is nice. This makes me feel at home. This is like how it is in the junior high group. Uh, you've got one, two, three. You've got four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and bonus. Uh, so, has has anyone ever heard um, that this is a this is a war against the Egyptian pantheon, and each one is a, yeah. So there's that, but there's like five other layers of complexity that are mind blowingly awesome. So he is going against the god, but also if you notice this, uh, first play, you guys remember what it was? It's on your fourth page. I think it's on there, right? Oh, it is on there. That's where my notes are. Okay. All right. Sorry. Okay. You've got Nile to blood. You've got frogs and you've got gnats. Gnats think mosquitoes. They congregate around water. All three of those are linked with what? Water. The next four, five, and six... If you notice, the language always uh, is related back to flies, animals, boils, and boils, he kicks the dust up, all related to what? Land. Land. And then the next three, hail, locust, darkness, all come out of that. One other thing. Why are there 10 and not 7 or 17 or 144,000 or 50 or? Completions. Some commentaries will say that. Are you going back to creation? (laughs) Yes. In creation, God speaks ten times. And then God said, and then God, it's very clear, ten times. You get ten plagues, all linked with what? God is putting on display, I am the God of creation, Pharaoh. I am, not you. And if you do go through, there are gods that it also uh, hits back against on each of these and it's also escalating through each one uh, that's why at the end you get darkness in number 9 because Ra is the sun god you probably heard he's like way high up there only one is higher Pharaoh and the point here remember the midwives Pharaoh you go after my sons I go after yours
this is just like cheerlead for God. Like this is, this is awesome. Um, oh yeah, and there's there's just lots of cool verbal links about uh, throughout this Pharaoh. The people are crying out to God. There's a great cry because the babies are being killed. And Pharaoh wants them to cry out to him. But in the end, God says at the last warning play, he says, there will be a great cry from your house. It's like all perfectly just matching back up and showing, I'm the God of creation. There is no other. There's no one like me. And so what ends up happening is God brings his people out. Um, God brings his people out and... What he's promised Abraham is that he's going to make him a great nation. And he's going to give them land, people, seed, and blessing. And for a nation, you need a land, you need people, and you need basically a constitution, something, some governing thing that holds you together. And so God brings his people out of Egypt, and now they have the people part. He's going to take them to the land part. And at Sinai, you get the constitution. And if you go over to chapter 19... I know we skipped the Passover, that there's tons going on there as well. Uh, if you go to 19, you get a phrase that is, is Israel's um, purpose statement. 19, verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Um, what's the role of a priest? Yeah, a go-between for God and, and, and people. And so just pause right here. God always cared about missions. God always cared about all the nations. Because the way he's determining to bring the whole world back to Eden, yeah, it's to choose one family, Israel, and to make a nation through them. But that nation, their whole purpose is to be a whole nation of go-betweens between God and who? The rest of the world. God has always had a mission to save people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation from, from day one with Israel. And so that was, that was their national purpose, to put him on display, and as you go through the laws, uh, oh, by the way, um, ten words in creation, ten plagues, maybe gives you a key to why there's ten commandments. So those are all tying together. Um, ten commandments are basically the application of principles in creation. So what Israel is supposed to do is this: live in such a way to point to the world who the God of creation is. That's what all those laws are about that you read. And we could, we're not going to go through all of them, but um, people get especially hung up about certain slave laws and things like that. And if you read them carefully, you start to realize these aren't, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Oppressive. These are the most beautiful, honoring, uh, lovely laws that could ever, that could ever be. Um, and so you get those laws. And what it, what, what's going on is... is it's a way for Israel to live to show God owns our time, God owns what we do, God owns creation. We want to put him on display by how we live. Our God is a God of life. That's why they don't eat pigs. Pigs are associated with death. And so it's not some arbitrary thing. It's to show the rest of the world our God is a God of life. And so we don't associate with, with what is closely associated with death. Slime? Yeah, yeah, exactly. We need to keep moving, don't we? 
Now, what happens in Leviticus? We're going to get to Leviticus now. Uh, Isaac, do you have Leviticus or did you have Genesis? Okay. Uh, at the end, at the very end of uh, Exodus, you get, uh, you'll see uh, the glory of the Lord on that last page. is like a little heading up there. And it sort of leaves off at this point where you've got God's glory filling the tabernacle. And when the cloud goes up, they follow it. And, and when, when the cloud moves and they'll, they go with it. But when, as his glory is covering the tabernacle, oh, we didn't talk about the tabernacle. Uh, if you're interested, talk to me more. The tabernacle is erected to look like Eden. That's why you get all the blue yarn and the pomegranates and the menorah looks like a tree. Again, they're displaying to the world. We can go back to Eden and the way is through this God. The question at the end of Exodus is, how can a God like this God that brought us out of Exodus, that is holy and righteous, and if even an animal touches the mountain, it will die. How can a God that's that holy live with a people that's unholy? How do you bridge that gap? Because we've seen God wants relationship with his people, which is just crazy and wonderful and amazing. And that's where we're headed at the end. God will dwell with his people. So God wants relationship with his people. And his people know that they need relationship with him. But how do you bridge that gap? And so Leviticus starts to answer this question within the, the Mosaic law system. And here's what we have to understand about the law. This is another hour or plus conversation. Uh, the Mosaic law is a pointer. You hear the word Torah? Torah literally means to point. Torah does not mean to save. Torah is is the pointing sign. And so uh, one of my professors, I like how he says this, uh, no one gets saved by holding on to an exit sign. If there's a fire in the building, you don't run over to the exit sign and hold on to it. You do what the exit sign tells you to do. And in the same way, the Torah, the law, it's pointing to something and it's planned, it has planned obsolescence. It's meant to be done away with eventually. We, we see that from the very beginning. And so uh, when we look at the law, yes, we are not under the law. But the law gives a picture of what it looked like in this society, in, in that society, to, um, to take the principles of God's character and live them out in a society. Put a wall up around the top of your house so that no one falls off of it and dies. Because we're a nation of life. Uh, We stand for life. So as a believer, I might say, I'm going to put a fence around my pool because I don't want little kids to fall in and die. It starts to get into these little details of your life where, sure, there's not a command in scripture that says, thou shalt put a fence around your pool. But you might start thinking and get wisdom as you read these laws and say, you know what, I'm going to take measures in my own home to to protect life because that's that's the God I, I trust and live for and he is a God of life. Does that kind of make sense? I wrote this down for you. There's five main offerings, uh, and they can all be sort of put together in different combinations, but they all point to different theological truths. You've got burnt offering, which is total, complete dedication of your person. You've got thanksgiving. You've got a peace offering that's giving the very best, the fat part to God, and that results in fellowship. And you've got two offerings for unintentional sin. Um, The guilt offering actually adds surplus payment. 
to deal with consequences, which, by the way, when you get to Isaiah 53, makes it really pop when it says that Jesus offers himself as a guilt offering for sin. Had it said just sin offering, eh, pays for sin. Guilt offering is he pays for sin and he deals with the consequences. He pays for it and then some. The wording is purposeful. Um, so in Leviticus, you get the different offerings. I feel like I'm starting to lose, lose some people here. And we are in Leviticus, so. Uh, chapter 10 is important. If you've been zoning, chapter 10 is important. Chapter 10 is where we hear about Nadab and Abihu. Um, Nadab, Nadab and Abihu and Exodus were in the group that saw God in his glory on the mountain. They saw his glory on the mountain. They come down. He gives instructions on how to worship him. And they decide, for whatever reason, some people think they were drunk. Some people think that they were just wanting to get clever or cute. We don't know. Uh, But for whatever reason, they decided, hey, we've got a good idea. Let's mix up a little something different here and offer that to God. We'll just read what happens. Uh, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, who's the high priest, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. The point here is that God's holiness is not something to be messed with. Worshiping God is not something to be messed with. Um, the, the language there, the fire came out and consumed them, is, is a sacrifice type of language. You either make the sacrifice as God described it, or you become the sacrifice. Um, it's a very serious passage. Um, and a beautiful one, because that's the pattern that sets up for Christ on the cross, where he becomes the sacrifice when we should have. There's only two options for dealing with sin, and Either we take it or someone else takes it for us. And so the cross is that solution. In chapter 16, you get the Day of Atonement, which is like the grand reset button on the whole Mosaic system. 18 through 20 is uh, basically your personal life, your sexual life, how uh, a biblical worldview shapes that, how it shapes corporate life and what you do uh, in Israelite society and how that would put God on display. Um. And then, yeah, just at the end, this, in, in 26, this is what's interesting. There, there's a, so much more to say on this, and I know I'm, I feel like I'm doing a disservice. Uh, 26, 26, 26. I didn't write the verse down. Uh, I think it's 11. God's talking to the people, and he says, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk among you, and will be your God, and you shall be my people. Now, this rings true for us today. The point of holiness, the end goal of holiness, that language there is the same walk used of Enoch and used of Adam and Eve in the garden when they walked with God. God's saying, I want a close, personal, intimate walk with you. And holiness is the bridge between my, my sanctification is the bridge between my <coughs> holiness that destroys anything sinful and your sinfulness. As I sanctify you, as I make you holy, that is how we will live together and we will walk together just like Enoch did, just like Adam did. Real holiness takes us back to Eden. Okay, numbers. Oh, I think we should stop, right? Five more. Keep going. Let's see if we could. Okay. All right. I'm, all right. Uh, yeah, right. Numbers in five minutes. Uh, let's.
Let's go real fast, and then maybe we'll, we'll kind of do a, a short little recap next time. So numbers is split into two big censuses, sensei. Uh, I don't know the word. Uh, you get an older generation, and you deal with all their wanderings and all of their um, sinfulness and their rebellion. And again, it always goes back to belief. It doesn't talk necessarily about keeping the Levitical law so much as it talks about believing and trusting in God. And so they do not trust him. And what you see at the beginning of Numbers, this is really neat. Everything that they do, the way they march, the way their camp is set up, the way they do everything is putting God on display. Because what the nations would all do is send spies out to watch you. And so they're watching what Israel does. And they see the tabernacle at the very center of everyone. And that's where you put your king. So what do they see? Their, their God is their king. And they see the way that they take it. There's a whole section on how to take it down and set it up. Why? Because if they go and they, Israel sets up camp and they're slow and they can't really figure out how to get this thing up and it falls down and it gets dirty, that looks horrible. But when the spies are watching in on them and seeing, whoa, they're on it. They're going. They're setting this thing up. They know what to do. They've got their formation. That says something about God and about the God that they serve. Uh, Every single detail of how Israel is arranged and how they're to march tells the nations, our God is our king, and he is in the center, and he's who we're following. And by the way, we're on the war path, so this is coming to you as well. Trust in him. Twenty four, twenty five, and twenty six. Let's flip over there. This is where you get the transition transition from the first to the second generation. And the reason the word for this book is refining is because God is showing how He can take one of the worst generations in the history of Israel, and by the next generation produce one of the the godliest, most wonderful generations in the history of Israel. It's a picture of what God can do in sanctifying people and changing them. And so, what you get in chapter. Um, well, 25. 24 has an awesome prophecy about the Messiah. Maybe we'll deal with it next time. Um, in 25, you get rock bottom. You get complete national apostasy, turning away from God, worshiping Baal, uh, Baal and it's basically the, the rock bottom of, of where they can be. And then you get a young guy, Phineas, who comes onto the scene. And, and Phineas, you'll notice it says, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron. He's the grandson of Aaron. Guess what Phineas would have watched? His two uncles, Nadab and Abihu. He would have seen that. They Most likely, we don't know for sure, but he at least would have heard the story because it wasn't very long after. And he's the grandson of Aaron, and he has zeal for God. He's part of the new generation that has been transformed. And when he sees uh, an Israelite, while, while some of the Israelites are repenting and weeping, another one brings in a woman with him into their midst. And uh, I don't need to tell you exactly what they were doing, but you can guess. And he spears both of them through. And God commends him and says, he was jealous with my jealousy for my own name. And you get this whole new generation now that is jealous for God, that loves him, that wants his honor. And you get all these stories that maybe you've heard of the Zelophefad's daughters. They're asking about the land and you wonder, why is this important? It's starting to show a generation that says, we care. We care about this land promise. We don't want to lose our land. We care about holiness. We care about what's going to happen in your promises, Lord. Whereas the first generation didn't seem to care. And so numbers, you get this refining of God's people and puts on display how how God can make his people holy. Even if it takes destroying a whole generation, that first generation, he will make them holy. He will make them walk with him. 
Okay, I think that's good. Um, thanks for bearing with me. I know that's really fast. It's on recording. Uh, talk to me, call me, email me. I'd love to talk more. And I hope that this will be helpful to you. Let's pray. Lord, thanks so much for this time and for your word and for who you are and for putting yourself on display. Uh, we want our hearts to be satisfied deeply in you and to live for your glory and to, to rejoice and, and kind of cheerlead as you put yourself on display day after day. Thank you for your grace and your goodness in Christ. Amen.